Well, good morning. Last week, I know we had some audio and visual problems, and so I wanted to give a brief synopsis of where we have been and then what we're looking at this morning. Uh, Last week, I began by sharing that one of my life verses is Proverbs 29, 18, which says, where there is no vision, the people will perish. Now, the Hebrew word used at the end of this verse is para, and it was a common word used to describe when a woman would let her hair down so that it was unconstrained in the wind and would blow in all different directions. For us, individuals and as a church family, it's easy in the midst of all that we have on our plates, not to mention the fact that we're living through a pandemic, to experience vision drift. So for the past 12 years as a church, we have revisited the vision that God established for us when we planted in 2008. Our vision here at Hope Chapel is to be a gospel community for the flourishing of the city. Our identity as individuals and as a church is rooted in the work Christ accomplished and applied to us through the cross. This redeeming work not only transforms us as individuals, God is also restoring things in heaven and on earth. He's drawing men and women and children into a relationship with himself and making us more into his likeness. He's undoing the injustices in our city, in our world. And God is transforming culture, calling us to transform the marketplace with our words and our actions, transforming the world of ideas by winsomely engaging academia and philosophers and creating new beauty in the arts. Here at Hope Chapel, we want to be salt and light in these spheres of influence. Each of us using our unique gifts and talents and collectively coming together as a church to further God's kingdom here and now. And not exclusively, but three forms that we see this transformation taking place through us here at Hope Chapel is through corporate worship, as we gather with our community groups, and through serving Greensboro. Now, to help us and to equip us to carry out our vision, we're, going, we're walking through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And last week, we looked at chapter 1, where we were reminded that worship is the fuel for mission. If we are to go out into the world, we must first bend our hearts and our minds to Jesus Christ and worship him. Secondly, last week, we saw that, that we are surrounded by a world that is powerful. Yet we have been given the Holy Spirit who empowers us to do the work of mission. We do not use his power to lord over others, but instead we, like Jesus, empty ourselves and humbly serve those inside and outside of the body of Christ. Christ enables us to be servant leaders that turns the power structure of this world upside down, thus further establishing his kingdom. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7. And first, I want us to consider two truths from this text. 
And then I want to talk about two implications for us carrying out our vision. The two truths that I want us to look at is first, the rebelliousness of humanity. And then secondly, the relentless mercy and love of God. Let me pray for us. Father, we would ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come that you would speak to us, that you give us ears to hear. And while some of these truths might be familiar, I pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would make them afresh and anew in our hearts, that our hearts would leap within us. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So if you have your bulletins, I encourage you to pull them out, or you can look at your Bibles at Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7. And the first truth that I want us to consider is the rebelliousness of humanity. When I was on staff uh, with InterVarsity many, many years ago, I took a team to Hungary, um, Budapest, and then to Kiev. And when we were in Budapest, if you've been to Budapest, there's Buda, which is up on the hill, and then Pest is down below, and it's just flat. And we were in Pest, and the way you get around in Pest is on the subway. And so I'd been before, and my co-leader had been before, and so we thought we had pretty much understood the subway system. And so we wanted to go and take the team to Pizza Hut. Yes, of all places, we decided to go to Pizza Hut when we were in Budapest. And so we look at the subway map, and we, we're like, okay, this is the line we need to take to get us to Pizza Hut. We're firmly committed that this is the right direction. So we, we get on the subway, and we start heading down, and we look, and we're like, this is the stop that we need to make. And we just keep going, and keep going. And people, are, you know, Hungarians are getting off, but nobody's getting on. We keep going, next stop, it's not our stop, Hungarians get off, nobody gets on. We go to the next stop, and then all the Hungarians left in the train get off. And we're sitting there, and they're waving to us like, you need to get off the train. Now, we as Americans are like, hey, we wave back, right? We're like, they're being friendly. And we didn't even think. And so we continue on. And then all of a sudden, everything in the tunnel gets very dark. And then the train comes to a stop. And then the motors turn off. And... We're in pitch black. All of us Americans, what do we do? We begin to scream and yell because unbeknownst to us, we were going the wrong direction to get to Pizza Hut. We were actually on the wrong train. And so we were yelling and we were screaming. Now, I'll tell you this story because we, like all of humanity that Paul speaks of in these first three verses of Ephesians 2, we're going in the wrong direction. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul writes this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, Paul is always so wordy, 
And so I want to break this down for us so that we can understand what is he trying to communicate in these three verses. In verse 1, Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now Paul, in this phrase, he diverges from a similar phrase that he writes in Colossians 2, verse 13, where he says to the Colossians that they were once dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh. Now here in our text, he says that we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Why the the switch from uncircumcision of the flesh to sins in Ephesians? Because in Ephesians, Paul uses the synonyms trespasses and sins to show the immensity and the variety of sinfulness of the reader's past. Paul doesn't want the Christians in Ephesus to miss the reality that before they came to Christ, they, like all of humanity, were in rebellion against God. Humanity had not just committed one act of rebellion, they had disobeyed God in every way. And as a result of their many trespasses, not walking with or living in relationship with God, they were spiritually dead, which in the final form is physical death, the judgment of exclusion from the life of God. Now look on to verse 2. Paul continues hammering his point of humanity's rebellion. He says to the Christians, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He says, prior to professing faith in Christ, you, like the rest of humanity, instead of being oriented to the life of this age to come, you have been dominated by this present evil age in the world. You had lived life that was in line with the norms and the values, wholly hostile to God, and in accordance with the ruler of the realm of air, which later in Ephesians, Paul calls the devil or the evil one. Paul is saying, you were under the lordship of the spirit who is now at work in those who have not professed faith. In Christ. And then he continues in verse 3 among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were nature, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Here he reminds the Christians once again, lest they have forgotten, that they were once among them who were disobedient. And they, like the rebellious humanity, were carrying out the passions of their flesh and thoughts. They once lived their lives in pursuit of their own ends, independent of God. And like them, because God is holy and just, they were by nature children of wrath, which is God's active judgment against all form of sin and evil. In these three verses, Paul is not talking about the fallenness of the physical earth and heaven. This will come later. Here in these three verses, he focuses all of his attention on the rebelliousness of humanity that the Christians in Ephesus Ephesus once lived. 
He wants there to be no mistaking the fallen condition of man that those who profess faith in Christ once lived. I remember Hunter Dockery preaching on this text. And he said, imagine being tied and chained and thrown into a lake. And you drop to the bottom of the lake and you're gasping for air. And then you die. And there's no way out. This is the state of rebellious humanity. This is the state that those of us who profess faith in Christ once lived. This is the dark condition of humanity that exists today. And if this doesn't cause a visceral reaction in the pit of our stomachs, like when we hear the worst news imaginable, then we're not hearing what Paul is saying to us this morning. This is tragic news. Paul, in these three verses, lays out the rebelliousness of humanity. And while this is sobering for all of us to hear this morning, Paul doesn't end here. He goes on to talk about the second thing that we're looking at this morning, the relentless mercy and love of God. Two of the most beautiful words in Scripture are but God. After exhaustively reminding the Christians in Ephesus of their formal status as part of the rebellious people, Paul draws our attention to our Heavenly Father who did all that was necessary to make a way that His wrath was satisfied and all who profess faith in Him might be transferred from death to life. Look at verses 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Our God, rich in mercy and full of love, he expressed his love in such a way that he sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life and to die on a cross and was raised from the dead so that the wrath of God is satisfied. And so by grace, those who profess faith in Jesus are made alive together with him. Those of us who profess faith in him participate in Christ's resurrection. There is a death to the old order and its powers. There's forgiveness of sins. And there's liberation from cosmic forces. And being freed from the dominion of sin, we now can choose through the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in Christ's way. To live a life of holiness that Paul talks about in Ephesians 1. And as we live out our lives with Jesus in the world, Paul concludes in verses 6 and 7 that we not only have a new nature, we have a new status. He says, And God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. We are united to Jesus. We are afforded all the rights and privileges of being an heir to the throne. We are his beloved sons and daughters. This is the good news of the gospel. 
And though we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God in Christ made us alive with him. When I meet with clients for the first time, they, they, they always ask the same question. And that question is, is there hope for them in their battle with a particular sin or with their marriage or a particular relationship? And my answer is always the same. Absolutely, there is hope. You have been bought with the blood of Christ. You have been raised with him. You have been given a new nature and a new status. You are no longer bound by this sin or by that wound. You have been set free to walk in the newness and fullness of life. Will the path be easy? No. Will you struggle at times? Yes. But God, who is rich in mercy and love, lives in you and can transform you. You simply need to join the work that he is already doing in your life, in your marriage, and in your relationship. The first three verses, they leave us with a pit in our stomach. These four verses fill us up with joy and praise to God. And if these verses don't move you in those ways, then you're not hearing what Paul is declaring We have been made alive with Christ. We have been saved from the dominion of sin. And so we see in our passage this morning the rebelliousness of humanity. And secondly, we see the relentless mercy and love of God. And for our remaining time this morning, I want to talk about two implications that these truths have for our vision here at Hope Chapel. And the first implication is, knowing these truths help us to have a posture of humility as we interact with others. Knowing these truths help us to have a posture of humility as we interact with others. I was having a conversation with a member here at Hope Chapel the other week. And through the course of our conversation, she shared with me how she experienced me differently in different occasions. And as I was listening to her and agreeing with her, I said to her, I believe I am at my best when I'm with clients. It's not because I'm being a helper, because as we've talked about, I'm not naturally a helper. I believe I'm my best self in those situations because as I sit with clients and I listen to their stories of wounds that at times take my breath away and I listen to their deep struggles with sin, I hear the Holy Spirit whispering in my ear, Todd, you are no different. You too were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were under the influence of the ruler of the air, and Christ raised you to life, not because of anything that you've done, but because of his grace. And as I hear God's gentle whisper, I'm humbled by the Almighty God who would choose a rebellious sinner like me and offer me new life. And it is this humility that enables me to meet them exactly where they are without judgment or condemnation. 
It is from this place of humility that God enables me to hold the other person's wounds, pain, anger, and fears. It is knowing the truth that I, as Paul says, once lived among them in the passions of my flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, that enables me to put my arm around them and walk with them on their journey of healing. And the challenge for me, and I believe the challenge for all of us, is to have the same posture of humility. No matter who we interact with. For us to carry out our vision here at Hope Chapel of being a gospel community for the flourishing of the city, we need to have a posture of humility that listens to others' stories without judgment and condemnation and that can speak with gentleness as one beggar leading another beggar to living water. Humility is sorely lacking in our society. So when we as the church move towards others from this place, God will show up. He will bring about transformation. And so I wonder this morning, as you think about your own posture toward your brothers and sisters that are sitting amongst you or at home, do you move toward them in humility? knowing from where you have come? Or do you move forward toward them with judgment and condemnation? Are you curious about their stories and helping them to see how their stories connect to God's bigger story? If we are going to carry out our mission of spiritual and social and cultural renewal, it begins with a posture of, of humility. Then and only then can we have healthy conversations. So the first implication of these truths is that these truths help us to have a posture of humility with one another. The second implication from these seven verses is that like Christ, We are called to demonstrate mercy and love. When we were kids, and I don't know if you ever played this game, uh, you would basically have another kid in front of you and you would clasp your hands together. And the goal of the game was to squeeze each other's hands and contort them so much and cause the other person so much pain that they would scream out mercy before you did. And if they screamed out mercy before you did, you could release and you won the game. What I love about God, life isn't a competition. It's not about success. God's only concern is his glory and his relationship with his people. So before your hands even touch God, he offers mercy to you. So often in our society today, we gather with our tribes and we play the game of mercy with one another. One tribe inflicting the other. 
causing pain until the other side cries for mercy. But in God's kingdom, it's not about tribes. It's not about winning an argument. It is certainly not about inflicting pain on others to get them to surrender. In God's kingdom, it is always about moving toward others with mercy and love. So as to unite, to be slow to anger, and to offer forgiveness. How will the outside world that is in rebellion to God, how will they see and know that God exists? Scripture tells us they will know by the way we love one another. We need to keep short accounts with one another. We need to say mercy first before we even start a conversation. And if a conversation gets heated, we need to always be the first to offer mercy and love. If we are marked by these godly characteristics and stop fighting with one another, then we join God, who doesn't fight against others, but he always fights for others, for their hearts, for their minds, and for their souls. And so I wonder this morning, do you move toward others with God's mercy and love? Are you quick to forgive and keep short accounts? If we are to carry out our vision of being a gospel community, then we, like our Heavenly Father who dwells in us, need to cloak ourselves with His mercy and with His love. We need not move to our tribes, but instead we need to stand united as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. For we are the church, united, and this, this will be attractive and it will be shocking to a divided world that we live in. After the darkness in that subway, we heard the engines start up again, and then the lights came on. And much to our relief, the train started going in the opposite direction. And at the next stop, we jumped off that train as fast as we could, and we went to the map to find the train that would take us in the right direction to Pizza Hut. I'm thankful for moments of grace where God gently shows us our sin and turns us around. In our text today, we see his grace on full display as he turned us from a life of rebellion to a life raised with him. My hope is that as God clothes us with humility, mercy, and love, that we become the church that God is establishing, that he established in 2008, that offers the same grace, that is quick to listen and engage people in conversations, that is quick to forgive, that offers mercy and love so that men, women, and children move from a life of rebellion 
to faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.